Well, if you have a Bible with you, then please turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews, not quite to the verses on your order of service, but to chapter 11 from verse 32, although we will focus on chapter 12, verse 2, but setting it in its context, and I think probably this is a better place to begin from. If you're unfamiliar with the letter to the Hebrews, it was probably, almost certainly written to Jewish converts who had come to put their hope before God in Jesus Christ as the long-promised Messiah, Savior, King. But they had begun well, but now they were experiencing hostility and opposition such that they were being tempted to turn back, to escape the cost of perseverance. And the writer to the Hebrews describes his letter in the final chapter as a brief word of exhortation, though I'm never persuaded exhortation is the best translation. Exhortation or encouragement. It's it's an encouragingly exhortation-driven epistle. It's a paracletic epistle. And he's writing to guard them from the danger of apostasy. And that's the background And as a pastor, he is writing to them. In chapter 11, he has taken them on a tour of their history and heritage in the Old Covenant. He's shown them that throughout history, from effectively creation until them, God has had a people, and that people have been marked by unyielding, perseverance in the face of great hostility. And he writes in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking away to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking away to Jesus. Looking away to Jesus. A week this past Thursday, I was privileged and honoured to take the funeral of one of the greatest men I've ever known in my life. He was the greatest preacher I ever heard. But what added to his ministry was the life that he lived. There was a sacred weight of character that gave unction to his preaching. It wasn't that his preaching was eloquent, though it was the most eloquent I have ever heard. It was rich in theology. It was rich in the glory of God. It was rich in Jesus Christ. It was a privilege to take that funeral. And I was remembering on one occasion what he said to me. He had been taken to hear Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach at the St. Andrew's Halls in Glasgow. There would be about 2,000 people there. I think it must have been in the late 1960s. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones was the preacher of the 20th century. He was a remarkably God-anointed preacher. And Eric said to me, he said, you know, after the service, there was a crowd of people waiting to talk to the doctor. And as my friend and I drew nearer to the doctor, after people saying who they were and thanking him for his ministry, he said the same thing to every single one of them. And as we drew nearer, Eric said to me, Ian, I thought to myself, could he not say something more? Does he have to say the self-same thing to every person that he speaks to? And then I thought, he said to me, what better thing could he say? Two words. Go on. Go on. The Christian world is littered today with people who once 
professed Christ, often animatedly, passionately, but who no longer do so. The history of the Christian church is a history of people who went out from us because, as the Apostle John puts it, they were not really part of us. They professed Christ for a season, and then, for one reason or another, they drifted away. If we didn't have the Bible, we would be overwhelmed by that knowledge and that reality. The Lord Jesus Christ was always alerting his disciples to the prospect and possibility of them falling away. There's a very significant moment in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8. Multitudes were following him, hanging on his every word. And then we read Jesus saying to the Jews who had believed in him, note the language, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. They profess to believe in him. They give every indication for a season that they did believe in him. But Jesus knew the hearts of men. And he said, if you are truly my disciples, you will continue perseveringly in my word. My word will never be an adjunct to your life. It will shape and style everything that you are. It will not lie on the surface of your life merely to be professed and acknowledged. It will work its way into the very precincts of your heart. And from there it will mold and shape you into the kind of people that God has called you to be. It is those who go on to the end, said Jesus, who will be saved. Mark 13. And this is the background to the letter to the Hebrews. They were in grave danger of turning back from Jesus. They had come to believe in Jesus. They had come to confess him as the sent one of the Father, the long-promised Messiah, the one who would come and who would fully, finally and forever deal with the sin that separates us from God. They had put their hope and trust in Jesus. But now life was increasingly becoming hard. They were suffering. In chapter 10 we read that some had lost their homes, their property had been taken from them, some had been imprisoned, some had died. I guess few of us, if any of us, know what that must be like. And so this letter is written, he says in chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. It is a word of exhortation, but it's also a word of encouragement. It's it's a double-edged nuance to, to the word paraklesis. It's a word of encouragement, absolutely, but it's a word of exhortation. 
And so throughout the letter, he punctuates the letter on about six occasions with warning passages. Let me tell you what will happen to you if you turn back from Jesus. The first one in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then in chapter 6, just picking up on, on two of these, in that very solemn passage, he says, those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the world to come and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. The writer punctuates his letter with solemn warnings. Don't turn back. To turn back is to cut yourself off from the only saviour of the world. But the great burden of the letter is not the warning passages. They are there because... This pastor, whoever he be, would use all the armor at his disposal, all the weaponry at his disposal, to prevent these believers from turning back. But a great burden of his heart is not to leave them enmeshed in warning passages, but above all, to show them the excellence, the preeminence, the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the great significance of the letter to the Hebrews. Not the warning passages, they're there, but they're punctuations. The great burden of the letter, as we see from the very beginning words of the letter, is to set before them the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, that they will say to themselves, how could we ever think of turning away from such a saviour as Jesus? And that's why he says in the second verse, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking away to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Let me quickly set the immediate context for you. He's just been taking them on a grand tour of the heroes of faith throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And he's doing so for a reason. He wants to say to them, this is your history. This is your heritage as the people of God. And it's a history and heritage that has experienced suffering and cost. And he mentions these various names from Abel, interestingly, right through the conspectus of the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, this is your history and heritage. And he doesn't spare them. He, he shows them that the lives that God has been pleased to honor and bless and receive to himself are lives that have gone on, that have not turned back in the face of great suffering, but have 
persevered, endured. And so he begins the 12th chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And the point is not so much that on the battlements of heaven there are a great company of spectators looking on and cheering you on. That may be there. It's a minor note, not the major note. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and Why does he call them witnesses? Because they were men and women who testified to the faithfulness of God, enabling them to persevere. Many of them lost their lives. You know that the word witness comes from the root martyr. Many of them were martyred for their faith. But their lives bore witness to the faithfulness of God. And he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And the question is, how can I do that? Sin clings so closely. It remains within me. It troubles me. It humbles me. It entangles me. How can I do that? Well, he tells us, lay aside every weight, sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He is likening the Christian life to a race. And that's a very common metaphor, isn't it? In Paul's letters, mostly. It's a race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. It's a race that has a beginning. Now, it doesn't really matter how you begin the race. It matters that you begin the race, whether the race has begun as John the Baptist's race was begun, as he was regenerate in his mother's womb, or whether you come in a moment to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, or whether in the good pleasure of God, you've never known a day that the Savior was not yours and you were not his. It matters not how you begin the race. It matters that you're in the race. That's why at the Reformation you will look in vain for the great magisterial reformers to give you anatomized accounts of their conversion in the 59 volumes of Calvin's works. There are Three, five lines in 59 volumes about his conversion. And you know all all he says? All he says is this. I was sunk in popery and God subdued me. Deus subiget. God subdued me. How were you converted, John Calvin? God subdued me. We don't know when Luther came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Something as early as 1511, 12 Something 1515, something after the 95 Thesis. You've probably heard of the 95 Thesis. Well, the 97 Thesis, which he wrote three weeks earlier, are much more interesting, but that's, by the way, much more Augustinian. What matters is not how you begin the race. What matters is that you've begun the race. And what matters thereafter is yes, that you go on in the race, that you don't see your beginning as the ending. 
I'm, I'm now in Christ. I can just wait for the glory to come. By their fruit you will know them. Because faith unites us to Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul has to confront a question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6. Because the gospel is so glorious in its freeness and in its richness that people were hearing it's all of grace, undeserved kindness from beginning to end. Well, let us go on sinning and give God every opportunity to show off his grace. And Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. Do you not know Do you not know? And he goes on, do you remember how to speak of what it means to be baptized into Christ? We're baptized into his death and resurrection. You cannot be savingly united to Christ and not have your life in some measure exhibit the life of Christ. It's an impossibility. And the race has to be run right to the end. At the moment we breathe our last breath. I've been with one man who actually, I think, begun, began the life of faith with his almost last breath. But we're to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And each of us have a race to run. We are idiosyncratic, we're unique. Your race is not my race. Well, in a sense, it's the same race. It's it's the race to live to the glory of God. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's the generality of the race. But your race is not my race. You have your own struggles, trials, difficulties, hindrances, problems. And I've got mine. And really the question I want to ask this evening is how... How do I run that race so that I go on? And he tells us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Now, there are English translations, one or two of them, that actually translate the verb as it should be translated. It should be translated looking away to Jesus. There's a double nuance in the verb. It's a present active participle, aphorontes. Some of you know that. Looking away, and the point of it is, the thrust of it is, we're to look away from something, and we're to look to something. So first of all, and really very briefly, what are we to look away from? Well, we're to look away from the great cloud of witnesses. That might seem counterintuitive. But why is he mentioning these, this great cloud of witnesses? Well, as I said, they're there to testify not to themselves, but to the faithfulness of God. And the point is we're to look away from even our history and our heritage, grand though it be. 
Because your history and heritage ultimately are not what will sustain you in the race. I don't mean we shouldn't know our history and heritage. We shouldn't cherish it. But we shouldn't be overly absorbed in it. Because your history and heritage will not enable you to finish the race well. And we're to look away from ourselves. One of Satan's great devices is to turn us in upon ourselves. I think it was Martin Luther who, who described the dynamic of sin as incurvatus in se, that which turns you in upon yourself. And one of the great dangers in the Christian life is that we look into ourselves. We, we look for comfort within. We look for encouragement within. We look at our attainments. We look at our Bible reading. We look at our prayer life. We look at our church attendance. Now you would know that in no way am I saying that Bible reading, prayer and church attendance are irrelevant, far, far from it. But that's not what we have to look to. One of the great devices of the devil is to turn churches and individuals into themselves so we become self-preening. We're to look away. We're to look away from ourselves and everything connected with us. There's a, if, if you want to treat yourself tonight, you can see this in the internet, I'm sure. John Calvin's commentary on Romans 4 verse 20 with regarding Abraham's faith is a stunning paragraph. We're to look away from ourselves and, says Calvin, all things connected with us. In this context of running the race. Because if you're running a race, you're not looking this way and that way. You're not looking behind you. Well, you might do occasionally just for a moment to see precisely where you are. But your focus is not to the right or to the left or what's behind. Your focus is on what lies before you. We're to look away from ourselves. But more importantly, secondly, this is the burden. Looking away to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. He is our wisdom from God, even our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.13 He is the propitiation for our sins. He doesn't just come to make propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. In him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus Christ is the gospel. I wonder if there's any more significant thing a young Christian can grasp early on in their Christian life that everything is in Christ. Everything is in Christ. And notice the three things in particular that we are to 
look away to Jesus for? Number one, looking away to Jesus. Number one, the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, he could be saying one of two things here. He could be saying, look to Jesus who began a good work in you and who will bring that work to completion. He will see to it. Look to him. Call to him. Uh, cling to him. Pray to him. He will carry you through. He began a good work and he will continue that work until he completes that work. But I think perhaps... The second way of understanding it is even better. Because you'll notice if you have a Greek text before you, maybe one or two of you have, it doesn't read the founder and perfecter of our faith, but the founder and perfecter of faith. He's saying to them, you can go on because you're united to one who continued to the end. Who persevered. Who did not turn back who refused to listen to the seductions of the world, the flesh, not so much the flesh, sorry, but the world and the devil, we have the seductions of the flesh, of course. Look to him to whom you have been united. Draw from his perseverance the grace that will help you to persevere. The Lord Jesus Christ did not cruise to glory. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. His perseverance was not effortless. In the frailty of his humanity, addicted to so many wretchednesses, as Calvin puts it, he persevered. He continued In the word of God. And he's giving them an expansive view of Christ. He's giving them a crash course in Christology almost. And then secondly, look away to Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross despising the shame. Do you know what joy lies before you? In the good pleasure and purpose of God, it is to be around the throne. It's to be where God is. To turn back is to cut yourself off from the hope of glory. Look at your Savior. Look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame. And these Hebrew Christians were experiencing shame and trial and distress. But he's saying, look at the Savior who saw the joy that awaited him if he would but fulfill the course laid out for him by his Father and not turn back. Maybe you're very different from me, but I bemoan most days, and I think I can say this honestly, most days I bemoan how little I'm taken up with the joy that lies before me. We don't meditate as generations past 
did. We don't ponder. We don't take the time to reflect and to read and to chew over and to give our minds and hearts to the immensities and the infinities of the joy, the unbridled joy that belongs to and is the possession of those who go on. It's those who go on to the end, said our Lord Jesus, who will be saved. And he says, so look at the example of your Savior to whom you are united. It's not mere exemplarism. You're united to Christ. Look at the joy. And then thirdly, looking away to him who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's a wonderful picture that he picks up from chapter 1 of a Savior who has completed his work of atonement. Look away to him who has completed the work entrusted to him by his Father, who has paid in full the price of your sin who has died the death you could never die, who endured the cross for you. Look to him who is now seated and enthroned. That's what will help you go on, that you have in Jesus Christ an indefectible salvation that nothing and no one can take from you because the one who accomplished it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look where Jesus is. He's saying to them, saturate your minds and hearts on the Savior. Consider him. You see, the two little phrases that really almost bookend the letter to the Hebrews is chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. And in verse 3 of chapter 12, consider him. That's what the letter to the Hebrews essentially is about. Consider Jesus. And it's a very striking verb. It is the, it's almost to do with accounting. It's to do with mentally assessing the worth of. Consider. Give your mind to pondering the wonders of the salvation of God found in Jesus Christ. And so the Christian life is to be lived looking away from ourselves, looking away from everything connected with us, looking to Jesus. I've needed to be reminded of that constantly through my life. To my shame, there have been times, if I'm honest, I've looked more to Calvin and Owen than to Jesus. How shameful is that? How, how shameful. We can look back and pride ourselves in, in our reformed history and reformed heritage and I'm a reformed Christian from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Blessing God for the privilege. But how easily we allow our privileges to be separated from Jesus Christ. In whom 
all our privileges are to be found. And when your privileges are separated from Christ, they no longer become privileges. They become idols. They become idols. Well, let me close by making three brief applications, though I hope the application has been throughout. I'm not really someone who thinks you expound, you explain, and then you apply. Doctrine is its own application. Um, If you have any access to the works of John Owen, if you're not sure, ask Benedict. Volume 1, page 460 into 461. You'll never read anything more wonderful on how instinct with practice doctrine is. Let me mention three things. Number one, for preachers and would-be preachers, this is a summons to preach Jesus Christ. To hold up Jesus Christ to your congregations, wherever you are in the scriptures. He's never an application. He's never an addendum. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, beginning with with Moses and all the prophets. He, He taught them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to the Colossians uh, 1, uh, 28, isn't it? Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And that's a challenge for preachers to be saturated with the glory of Christ, the grace of Christ. And exploring Christ promised and Christ revealed and Christ given and Christ coming again. And tracing the history of redemption, relating it always to the seed promise that God would raise up one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. It's all about Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's an application to Christian believers that we should understand that the Christian life is fueled by the Savior. Fueled by who he is and what he's done. Fueled by his incomparable excellencies. We need to realize that As I said a few moments ago, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And sometimes I think, if you're anything like me, we're we're content with accumulating truths about Christ. And that's important. We need to be doctrinal Christians. But it's no substitute for knowing Christ. Remember Paul's words in... Is it Philippians 3, isn't it? Philippians 3, um, when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. And then thirdly, it's an application to people who are not yet Christians. And I need to say this, that There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. He is 
the one given by God for the salvation of the world. He is the one you need to look to. There's a great story, some of you will know this, it's so well known, but it's worth telling again. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was 15 years of age. He was raised in a Christian home. He was in London. He set out to go to an evening service of worship. It was a very snowy night. He managed to find the church. He was the only person there. The preacher didn't turn up. And the church officer, the beadle, we call him in Scotland, comes in with a Bible and he opens it. And he looks around and he sees Spurgeon. And he quotes a verse from Isaiah 45, Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. And he points his finger at Spurgeon and says, Young man, you look miserable. Look to him and be saved. A look does it. A look does it. Because in a look, there can be an eternity of grace. Look to him. Rest the weight of all that you are on the grace of all that he is. He came and did it all. There's nothing you can do to add to it. All you need to do is look to him and receive all that he is. May God bless his word to us this evening.